Hi everyone, and welcome to our weekly podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Today, we will be covering the identification and management of lung cancer with EGFR Exxon 20 insertions in the UK with Sanjay Popat, Alistair Greystroke, Anna Mincham and Rhea Shah. In this exclusive podcast, they'll talk first about current treatment options for EGFR Exxon 20 mutations, as well as management strategies based on real-world evidence. A panel of experts will then finally discuss how we can identify EGFR Exxon 20 mutations. And now I'll pass you over to the speakers for today's lung cancer session with VJ Oncology. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to this first of several lung cancer sessions hosted by VJ Oncology and the British Thoracic Oncology Group, BTOG. I'm delighted to invite you to this session, which will be focusing on the controversial and relatively novel area of EGFR exon 20 insertions in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. My name is Sanjay Popper. I'm consultant medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital, and I'm joined by three legends in their lifetime, three experts who know this area incredibly well. My colleague, uh, Dr. Alastair Greystoke, who's at the uh, University of Newcastle, um, Dr. Riaz Shah, who's at the Kent Cancer Centre, and my colleague, Dr. Anna Minchin, who's at the Royal Marsden Hospital, all medical oncology consultants. So we're going to kick off asking about exon 20 insertions. Alistair, we hear, uh, hear about this term, you know, what are these exon 20 insertions? Uh, what, yeah. what does this mean? Yeah, so, you know, I think we're most used to the sort of classic synthesizing mutations of, you know, the 15 base pair deletion in exon 19 and L858R. And some of us may have seen on reports over the years, you know, EGFR exon 20 insertion is as a resistance mechanism to our standard TKIs and sort of, you know, our hopes raised and then they, they fell again. Um, they're, you know, relatively uncommon. Um, we'll, we'll talk about it. it. It does partly depend on how you test, but maybe 5% of EGFR mutations have this insertion in, in, in exon 20. And, and what it does is it sort of activates uh, in a different manner, but it activates the EGFR uh, receptor. Um, but in a way that the classic first, second and probably third generation EGFR inhibitors don't block and, and, and leads to cancer and that sort of mechanism as we're used to as a, a sort of activating oncogene. And if you if you find an exon 20 insertion, what, what does it actually look like on the report, right? Yeah. Does the report actually say EGFR exon 20 insertion or not or do we have to interpret it? I mean, how do we, how do we, you know, in the melee of the report, pick this up? Yeah. So, so, so hopefully if you're a genomics laboratory lab, which is where most of these will be picked up if you're working in the English environment, they should highlight that this is known as an EGFR exon 20 insertion, but that they do have to give sort of genomic nomenclature. And, and you'll hear, as you'll hear, you know, there's a number of different insertions out there. They're some of the most common ones, but in general, what you'll see is uh, they'll say insertion or INS or duplication, which means to say, just say DUP. And often these will be three extra base pairs and somewhere between the six, seven, six, two to seven, seven, uh, four. That's right. I always have to check myself, uh, Mark, but that's the Exxon 20 and that's where you see them. And there's, there's some that are particularly common and you'll get used to seeing, but often these will, well, they should normally be multiples of three numbers or three letters rather that shows the three base Base pairs are being inserted, or six base pairs, most commonly three to six, and it should say insertion or or, or duplication. 
And and how are these patients currently being treated? I mean, we we you know our current commissioning for osimertinib uh, in England just says EGFR mutation, right? So are we is that what we should be doing first line? Um, what are that? What are these patients currently getting? Well, well, so it's, it's not sensitizing, and, uh, and you know, uh, osimertinib at the standard dose has very limited activity in these. Uh, again, um, you will see if you go into the literature that there's some that are called proximal, which are some of the more rare ones, are in the actual C uh, helix themselves, and they may be res- more responsive to t- uh, sort of some of the standard tyrosine kinase inhibitors and some of the new ones that we may talk about. Um, but most of the, com- the, the most of them are, are, are more distally. And these don't respond to osimertinib. You know, osimertinib is for the classic sensitizing EGFR mutations. Uh, that was what was in flora. Um, and so in my practice, certainly up to date, uh, and we can talk about whether this is the right thing to do or not, I've tended to just treat it as that at, in the first line setting as a resistance mechanism to EGFR. And I treat them as wild type in the first line setting. And so they're treated with chemo, platinum doublet chemotherapy, platinum pemetrexid as per per, yeah. per standard. Yeah. Okay. Yes, um, and um, Riaz, do we have any, any drugs specifically that might um, target these um, uh, mutations? Uh, what have we got up our sleeve? Yeah, so basically there are um, two key drugs that are of interest here. One is an antibody called amivantamab, which has a license. Uh, and this is a bispecific uh, monoclonal antibody that hits EGFR and MET. Um, and so um, it, that drug has an FDA label uh, and it has an EMA label. And the labels are for um, Exxon 20 insertion patients in the post-platinum setting only. Uh, the other uh, drug is mobocertinib. So this like osimertinib, afatinib, uh, all the IBs, this is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, and it's an irreversible, orally bioavailable uh, um, TKI, um, which has a license. Now, the, the, this is this bit's quite tricky because in the FDA, uh, it is licensed in exactly the same space as amivantamab. Um, the UK, now that we're not linked to EMA, also has a label. But in EMA, the uh, application was withdrawn. The EMA uh, asked some questions of the manufacturer, questioning the response rate uh, being a bit low, and the manufacturer basically withdrew the application. Uh, so uh, there is an odd, um, unusual uh, sort of approval system. So uh, amivantamab, FDA, EMA approved, mobocertinib, just FDA approved, in our nice system, CDF reimbursement is just for mobile, certainly. Uh, and so, can I just clarify? We have MHRA approval for MOBO, uh, and we have uh, NHS commissioning uh, through uh, CDF for MOBO uh, in, in, in England. So, we are allowed to use MOBO, prescribe it as of uh, today. Um, uh, and that's through Project Orbis. So it's been on label for some time okay. now, maybe even up to a year. I can't quite remember, but quite some and, time. And just remind us, what is the indication? So the indication for both drugs is in a patient who has 
um, a stage four patient with, um, it doesn't actually say that in the label, but an advanced disease patient with a known exon 20 insertion in EGFR post platinum. Okay. So we're using it effectively in the second line setting. You start off with first line. Assuming they haven't had a first line uh, conventional EGFR inhibitor, the conventional thinking would be that these patients would have had first line chemo or chemo IO. There's a discussion to have around that. And then this would then be introduced as the second line treatment. Okay. And what, what is the approval based on? What is the efficacy and um, what's the sort of toxicity that we see? So both drugs have been, so this is quite interesting. In oncology, we're used to seeing really big randomized phase three studies. You know, our dr the drugs that we used only get available on the NHS in really big studies. And here, two drugs are, are potentially, um, well, one of them is approved, but two drugs with a label based on very small studies, you know, basically phase one dose escalation and then dose expansion cohorts. Uh, two studies, one called Chrysalis and the other one called Exclaim. Um, uh, that's documented the MTD, documented the activity, both powered for response rate. Um, and um, I mean, I think we're going to, through the course yeah. of this discussion, talk in detail about the efficacy, but two very similar studies, and I would call them essentially phase 1B stroke phase 2 studies. And this is because they're in an accelerated approval paradigm with the US FDA, isn't it? Correct. Um, and Anna, um, uh, Riaz has been talking about amivantamab. Uh, uh, I know you've been uh, using it in, in the trial. So how, how does uh, amivantamab work compared to what we normally think about with monoclonal uh, antibodies and, and how do you administer it? So it's a bispecific antibody. So in simple terms, it's two antibodies in a construct together, which as Riaz says, um, targets both EGFR and MET on the cancer cell surface. So it's quite unusual in terms of drugs that, 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 that we use in lung cancer. It's got a variety of different proposed mechanisms, some you'd expect, such as um, ligand binding and also um, endocytosis and deg degradation of that bound receptor, and also some sort of immune-mediated proposed mechanisms of action. Um, so how do we use it? Well, it's, it's intravenous. I can talk through the dose escalation portion of the study, which um, uh, gave us a recommended phase two dose, which is dose banded according to weight above and below 80 kilos. Um, and then it's administered um, in a, a quite an unusual way. Um, I'm sure many people are using it in the UK now. Um, you have a dose uh, that is split on day one and day two. So a half dose on day one and day two of first cycle. And that's to get around this, this issue of infusion-related reactions, which are quite prevalent in the trial, though fairly low grade in the vast majority. After your split dose on day one and day two, the drug is given weekly for the first cycle, which is 28 days. And then after that, it's given in a fortnightly. So essentially, you've got a bit of a loading period for that first cycle of treatment. And um, with, with the infusion reactions, is that you know, how do we how do we manage that? I mean, is that something that you need to supervise personally? Do you need to train your nurses for that? How does that how does that work? Well, they're very predictable in some ways. In that, over ninety percent, I think it's ninety four percent or something in the trial occur on that first day. 
After that, there's about 4% on the second day, and then diminishingly smaller, small incidents of infusion reactions after that. So it's partly about counselling of patients to say, you know, you are quite likely to have an infusion on the first day. This is what it might feel like. This is how we treat it. So they're prepared and also staff, you know, staff training. The practical aspects of it is slow infusion times. That's sort of clearly described how you can increase your infusion um, if it's if the reactions aren't occurring. And then pre-medication with, with um, steroids, um, uh, you know, antihistamines and antipyretics. And, um, you know, what is um, the, the natural history of these, these patients, right? So if we weren't using um, uh, Mobocertin, which Rez has talked about, and we weren't using Mvantamab, which we've talked about, you've talked about, they'd presumably be getting either a taxane or IO, I, I, I'd have thought. I always thought that that you know taxanes were what people were getting but um i know ali you and i have had a sort of different chat and some of the feedback we've had from people around the country uh, when it came to the nice submission was that actually there's a wide diversity of treatments that people are, uh, are giving is there um you, you know what happens to these patients normally after uh, progression on platinum i think the first thing to say is that these patients have a, a poor prognosis in the absence of targeted treatments uh, probably both in terms of platinum doublet chemotherapy but but definitely in terms of single agent immunotherapy and i think that's now been pretty well documented um unfortunately i think because a lot of people see that these patients uh, you know have uh don't have a classic egfr mutation where we, we do tend to avoid immunotherapy and they think well um, they're hoping that you know these patients might do well with immunotherapy and that they'll have less side effects with immunotherapy than a taxane. I think many people just treat them as they would a wild-type patient and go forward with second-line immunotherapy, um, which I think the data would support is, is the wrong thing to do. But I think, unfortunately, a number of people would do it. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, the data, I mean, it's basically like having an EGFR mutant patient without a drug, right? You would, yeah. you know, single agent IO does next to nothing in terms of PFS uh, and response rates for, for that for, for that patient. So I was quite surprised when I saw that. Now, Annie, you've done a bit of work on real world outcomes of patients with, with Exxon 20, very nice publications you've been involved with, as of you, Alistair. Um, but Anna, maybe, maybe you can um, tell us about what we've learned from these, about what happens to these patients. Uh, I mean, is it... Is it as good as the Exxon 19 deletions or is it a different different kettle of fish? Yeah, I mean, I think real world evidence is pretty important in this patient group. As we said, they're rare patients. You're unlikely to get large randomized control trials by which you're going to get direct comparison. So real world evidence is, is pulling the data from patients who are receiving standard of care. The US is, is often a playground for this in that there's very large data sets that are accessible. But of course, you know, looking at the UK experience is also is, is really important for, you know, for our local population. Um, there's obviously um, drawbacks with using retrospective non-trial data, but it's but it but nevertheless it you know provides a useful correlate. And you can really look at, as you say, we've had some publications looking at, first of all, comparators to study populations. So, you know, are the group who have exon 20s who are treated with standard of care getting better or worse outcomes than those treated within a trial, um, such as the amivantamab trial, chrysalis trial, to which you try and match the population as near as possible in terms of post-platinum and performance status and the like. Um, 
and what you can learn from that, as you say, is is about what people are using. And certainly from the data sets we've seen, it's it's pretty split across in a post-platinum era using either chemotherapy, likely taxanes, or even platinum re-challenge, or as you say, immune immune oncology drugs, immunotherapies. So we now have Exxon 20 specific drugs, right? That's basically what we're we're, we're saying. We have two drugs with different um, regulatory uh, approvals. In terms of the NHS, um, uh, amivantamab is not NHS reimbursed, at least in England, uh, but mobocircinib is. So Anna, what's the what's the activity? Can you speak to the response rates, etc., about um, uh, uh, amis? I mean, are we seeing with ami the same thing as we're seeing with with osimertinib, for example? No, that would be great. No, I mean, so so I think uh, the, the responses are not to the level that you get with TKIs in the common EGFR mutations. So from the chrysalis data, um, which, as Riyaz says, was, was was relatively small study, just over 80 patients in this in this, this um, efficacy group, response rates was 40%. Median duration of response was um, 11.1 months um, and um, PFS was was just over eight months. So certainly, and again, going back to the real world evidence, that appears to be better than, than the alternatives, but not at the dizzy heights of osimertinib in common EGFR mutations. Yeah. Okay. So activity, not as good as we'd see with DOSI, probably not as good as we see with IO, mono, and certainly nowhere near as we'd, we'd love to see with with a a, a, a a TKI for a typical target uh, uh, approach. And Riaz, with MOBO now, so MOBO is NHS reimbursed. You can prescribe it uh, uh, today within the uh, CDF uh, guidelines. What sort of activity should you and your colleagues be expecting to see with that? What did exclaim say about uh, efficacy? Well, you know, that's actually quite an interesting question because you get different numbers depending what document you look at. It's a slightly complex there were the situation. There was a dose expansion, um, uh, dose escalation, dose expansion cohort, uh, and then there was a separate exclaim thing that happened in a few countries called exclaim, and the publication mixes patients from both of these into some sort of conglomerate group and they report response rates for different subgroups differently and if you then look at there have been different presentations uh, and different regulatory documents all quote slightly different response rates at different cuts but ballpark figures um, investigator assessed response rates of about 25-26%. So a bit low, really. Investigator assessed a bit higher, 34-35% in that order. But the thing that's interesting for me is duration of response in the study was about 15 months, longer than amivantamab. And, um, but, you know, PFS not very good, seven, seven months. So nothing exactly as Anna said, not, not a blockbuster drug, not an osimertinib. Uh, but um, more of a soto razib, shall we say? Yeah. So you know, step in the right direction, but it's not going to yeah. it's, it's it's not going to you know completely set the earth on fire straight away. But actually, way better than what we've got at the moment. I mean, that's my my interpretation of yeah. the uh, uh, data. Now, one of the challenges that we have is that these patients behave like EGFR mutant patients, right? They are your typical never smoking, light ex light smoker uh, patients. They get brain mets, right? Like like EGFR mutant patients, right? What do we know about the brain? activity of of these drugs um uh Riaz, do you want to do you want to 
go, go into that? Uh, yeah. You know, do we so, have data? so brain meds are highly prevalent in Exxon 20 insertion patients. Many of the patients, the small number of patients I've looked after, have had brain meds and all have, if they've not had them, have developed them. So incredibly common. In the MOBO study, we know 35% of patients going in had brain meds. We don't really know what the intracranial response rates of these drugs are because they don't report them in a straight fact, as a, as, a, as a simple statistic, and really uh, highlighting how badly and non-standardly brain meds get discussed and reported across clinical trials across the world. So it's actually really difficult to tease it out, but I think you generally get a sense that there are concerns. Obviously, amivantamab being a monoclonal antibody, it's a big molecule, it's unlikely to cross uh, membranes. You would think MOBO, certainly being a TKI, might uh, obviously uh, have an advantage there. But when you look at the MOBO data, uh, the commonest, one of the commonest sites of relapse in the patients in Exclaim was in the brain. Um, something like 40% of patients pro who progressed, progressed in the brain. We know that. We don't actually know what the intracranial response rate separate from the no, extracranial response rate is. So there are concerns that these drugs are not hugely CNS active. I, th I think that's right, right? So we don't, you know, the trials, what, none of these trials have been designed in the same way the ALK studies have, right? Where you're doing MRIs every six to eight weeks alongside Correct. the CT scans, right? So all we know is that the response rate in patients with brain mets, the whole body response rates, is lower than patients uh, without brain mets, really giving us some idea that, um, you know, we're, we're not in the world of osimertinib here, but we're probably still, I would suggest, right, let's not be too too negative um, in the world of uh, docetaxel uh, either. Anna, if I can just bring in the AMI experience here, right? So uh, Riaz has been a bit disparaging about large molecule um, uh, crossing the blood-brain barrier, right? But we know that we know that um, uh, these molecules can cross the blood-brain barrier, right? So do we have any data with uh, amivantamab and CNS efficacy, uh, or is this still a challenge as well? I think it's definitely still a challenge. I mean, I think if you're a betting person, you'd say it probably wouldn't get through a blood pain barrier. But we don't have any uh, direct evidence um, biologically to 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 support that. Um, the inclusion of the chrysalis was you had to have you couldn't have active or untreated brain metastases. Yep. So that limits our our, our population hugely. Yeah. And um, Riaz, I'll come back to you about uh, MOBO. So if we are using this, we've got to be careful about the brain, right? So you're going to give your, your patient platinum up front, ideally. You're going to be really careful about your brain because you know that these patients are, are going to get brain mets at some point. You're dealing with drugs which, you know, aren't going to have great, you know, intracranial uh, penetration. You know, what, what's the role of brain imaging in, in these patients? Should we be doing it routinely? Does it, does it have a role in the same ways it does for... I think it's for others. Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical, and I think it's critical for all EGFR mutation positive patients. I will. I can't insist because there are implications, as we know, on your ability to drive. I never insist that patients have brain imaging, but I very, very strongly suggest to them that if they want to see the outcomes that you see in international data sets of what kind of median survivals are being reported in Japan, US you know, other Western economies where brain imaging is integral, 
the survivals are orders of magnitude longer than what we're seeing in the UK based on real world data presented at BTOG meetings in the past. And I think a lot of that is driven by intracranial management. And if you don't image the brain, you just don't pick these things up at an early stage where they can be SRS. You can't do preventative brain medicine, if you like, you know? Yeah. And so if we're using um, MOBO, um, what are the adverse events that, you know, you should be counselling your patients uh, about? Um, and, um, you know, uh, Riaz, what, what do you say to your patients, right, when you're talking to them, taking them through the consent? What are you going to look out for? and How do you mitigate against these adverse events? Yeah, so mobocertinib is an EGFR, anti-EGFR TKI. So we know what the, we've been using, you know, all the EGFR inhibitors for a while. So we're very uh, au fait with the time, kind of toxicity profile. I think it's important to say mobocertinib, in my opinion, is a hot drug. And what I mean by that is at its standard starting dose of 160 milligrams a day, toxicity is very frequent. And in my experience, very few patients I don't actually think I've ever had a patient tolerate that dose for any length of time. Dose reductions are very common. There's a whole, and a lot of it is standard EGFR stuff. So paronychia, rash, stomatitis, uh, but there are other things that are important to consider. ILD is something you need to watch out for. One of the main things with MOBO that you need to be careful of is CNS, sorry, is cardiac toxicity. So QTC prolongation, is something that is common and needs to be watched for quite carefully. You need to be quite careful about the ejection fraction. Uh, and I would probably do an echo at baseline and perhaps intermittently monitor a patient for the first few months they were starting on it. I would certainly do serial ECGs at the beginning. Um, and the other thing that needs to be considered is drug interactions, you know, so uh, CYP3A inhibitors and inducers. Um, uh, that will seriously affect the, the steady state level of mobocertinib. Uh, and so that needs to be considered as well. So many patients require dose reductions. Dose reductions are relatively straightforward. The dose is 160. It's a 40 milligram tablet or capsule. So you can go down in 40 increments. Um, the SPC um, says to goes down to 80 and not below. But I, I've managed a patient on 40 once a day because they just couldn't tolerate a higher dose. And when do you see responses? Do they occur like other TKIs quickly um, or are they late? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, uh, it's difficult because you don't get the, the numbers of patients uh, to really get a sense of that. But my sense when you look at the exclaimed data is the time to response was very quick. You know, within a cycle or two, you'll start seeing uh, improvements on imaging if you image that frequently. And Anna, are we seeing the same kinetics with with um, AMI? Or it works in a very different mechanism, right? It, it, it's really talking about EGFR degradation, right, from the cell surface and this 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 other sort of potential immune mechanism as well, right? So, are we getting rapid responses, or is it a bit more nuanced? I, I, I think it sort of feels similar in terms of, uh, you know, when the response comes in, if patients are going to respond, you know, I've had symptomatic patients who've gone on and, you know, by the time you see them for their second cycle, they're feeling an awful lot better from the, from a disease point of view. So I, I mean, as like, like, like Riaz says, it's difficult to build up large numbers of patients um, to, uh, to answer that fully. But I certainly think if patients are responding, they tend to respond early as well. Yeah. So uh, Alistair, we've got these, 
new drugs. We've got yeah. access to drugs in the UK. We've yeah. heard about the efficacy. You know, it is, it's, it's not as great as we'd like to see with osimertinib, right? But it's, it's definitely, you know, good stuff, right? Yeah. And, you know, people will tell you that they get better very quickly, right? Yeah. Um, how are we going to find these patients? That's the fundamental issue, right? Yeah. What are we doing with testing? Yeah. This is where oncologists need to be really careful because, you know, if you're sending testing for your patients, you know what genes get tested for. So, you know, you can see if your patient's been tested adequately for a RET fusion or a ROS1 fusion. The problem is you need to here to actually look at the technology that's been used because if it's been done with a sort of EGFR, uh, PCR, like a single gene test or even a point of care device, a lot of these uh, insertions may be missed. So studies have suggested you might miss 40 to 50% of these patients if you're using one of the older technologies. Now, I think most places are moving to medium or large panels that will do next generation sequencing that will pick up a lot of these mutations. But because we're still tr struggling to get good turnaround times and waiting lists and everyone wants to get everyone on treatment quickly, a lot of places are using point-of-care devices or rapid gene testing, and that will miss these patients. And you won't even know it because you'll say, oh, yeah, they've got EGF, they've been EGFR tested. There's nothing there. So that's re really dangerous for us as oncologists. We need to look at what's being done. And we've got very good data, really, from from mm. many of these commercial NGS providers who've shown that if you look at the wide diversity of Exxon 20 insertions, many of which have only been uniquely reported once in a database, yeah. only a tiny number will have been picked up by a standard PCR, right? So you'll be missing those. You'll be calling a patient EGFR wild type when actually they're Exxon 20 insertion and doing all sorts of treatment when you're actually not giving them the right right treatment. So I think what you're saying to me is know the test yeah. that you're doing and make sure that, you know, uh, uh, NGS, if possible, I think is, is a message that you're saying. So what about liquid biopsies, right? Is, is this going to solve the problem uh, or is this just going to create more problems, Ali? It, it, it's a really good question, actually, that. Um, so uh, I've certainly had patients who we've picked them up on. Uh, you'd think because it was an insertion on duplication and ctDNA is a bit smaller that you might miss some, but I had a look and in the mobocertinib trials, they picked it up in about 75% of patients, yep. which is probably what we reckon is about the sensitivity normally in the stage four setting. So probably you can pick it up by ctDNA, but again, as always with ctDNA, if you don't pick something up, doesn't mean you haven't missed it unless you found another obvious driver, which should be mutually exclusive. So uh, just be a bit aware. And Anna, we've got we've got the genotyping technology. We've got the drugs available. We've talked about the efficacy uh, and the patient management. First line, right? Are we going to move to first line with these drugs? Tell us what's going on in the AMI space in the first line setting. So the first line AMI trial that's going on is um, Papillon. Papillon, yeah. Which yeah. is comparing, uh, it's randomized, and it's comparing AMI plus chemo um, yep. versus chemo alone. So that's not single agent AMI, that's in, uh, that's in combined chemotherapy. I guess with a recognition that the single agent activity is okay, but could be improved on. And, you know, yeah. the whys and wherefores of, of, of combining an EGFR inhibitor with, with um, a cytotoxic drug um, can be debated. But that, those results will be very interesting to see. Um, so that, 
that tells me that the control arm is platinum doublet chemotherapy without IO. Sorry, yes, and the, exactly And right. the interventional arm is chemotherapy, platinum doublet chemotherapy with, with AMI. So, yeah. Ali, that that, Alistair, that tells me that the FDA have recognized that platinum doublet chemotherapy is the regulatory standard for these patients and not chemo IO. Do you agree with the FDA? Is that is that what we should be doing? <laughs> well, I wouldn't dream of arguing with the FDA. Um, uh, I think we don't really know because, you know, certainly, so I, I had an EGFRX on 20 person who went into one of the, you know, chemo IO studies because they were allowed in, they only excluded sensitizing EGFR mutation patients. And these are so rare. So I don't think we, we really know that. Um, I guess the question is, you know, do we think the IO adds anything? Uh, and we don't know. And also the second question then is, if you're giving IO in combination with your chemotherapy, is that going to impact on subsequent toxicity when you do want to give either your amavantanib or your mobocertinib? And again, I guess we don't know, but I would be worried about that. Um, so I, I have an informed discussion or an uninformed discussion with patients at the moment, and most of them have, fit, have chosen to have the immunotherapy, well, small numbers alongside it. And Riaz, where are we going with MOBO uh, up front? We've got single agent data in the post-platinum setting. Are you able to speak about um, the MOBO frontline trial? So I know there is one, MOBO versus chemo. Um, and when you look it up on clinicaltrials.gov, it's classified as an active trial, but an active trial that's not recruiting. So it's either completed accrual and is waiting for a readout. Uh, so I, I don't really uh, know much more than that. Yeah, so the so the frontline trial is um, standard platinum chemotherapy, as we've discussed before. The FDA has clearly recognised that as the control arm versus MOBO mono. So it's not what um, the AMI group have done in combining the drug with chemo. They've gone for MOBO monotherapy versus platinum doublet chemotherapy, um, and uh, that trial has completed recruitment. And we're clearly all you know going to be waiting for the number of events to come uh, come through. So uh, you know. I think this is going to be an exciting, exciting uh, time period, right? We've got, we've got, you know, two frontline trials. We've got uh, approved options, um, but we've got two great phase oneers uh, uh, on the on the line, right? Anna and Alistair, right? So there's lots of activity coming through. Just give me a couple of lines, Ali, first about, you know, what are you quite excited about coming through? Uh, because you know, like the way I view it is that Mobo and Ami are great, but they're the sort of first wave right we've got yeah. the bigger bigger drugs coming through Hallelujah. yeah so, so there's a number of other certainly egfr tkis coming through from, from companies some which are further forward in development than others and some that have presented some early data that suggests you know higher response rates than have been described with membocertinib and and amavantanab um a number of them have still reported this issue about hitting EGFR. So particularly uh, DZD, which is, has now got a name, I think it's some some bezatinib or something. That's still got very high rates of uh, diarrhea uh, and rash associated with it. So I'd like to see some that are a bit easier to give. Um, so there's this new one, which is CLN at 081, uh, which again, you know, small numbers, the efficacy looked pretty good and they're not reporting the diarrhea or rash. So that's probably the one I want to see a little bit more of. Anna, is there anything uh, otherwise that is uh, floating your boat in terms of uh, uh, drugs or is Ali hit on the main contenders there for the, for the crown? 
Yeah, I think those are the ones that we've we've seen a little bit of data about to get to get excited about. But there certainly are ones which are a little further behind. Uh, there's Blue Four Five One, and there's, there's there's another couple um, that that are sort of you know going to going to be starting, but they're a little further back. But there's certainly a, a pipeline of interesting drugs on their way. You know, I think this is going to be an extremely exciting area for the next few years, right? We're going to be really seeing uh, the latest advances in medicinal chemistry coming through as the next generation EGFR inhibitors come through, both biological agents and kinase inhibitors. Uh, extremely uh, interesting. And it's not over for uh, AMIAs yet, because I think, Anna, there are trials ongoing using a subcutaneous formulation, as far as I'm aware, looking at clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, so that those are enrolling, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's that's an interesting approach, uh, given that the main issue is with um, infusion reactions and, you know, subcutaneous delivery in theory would, would uh, uh, you know, potentially overcome some of those issues of delivery. Uh, so um, keep an eye out for that data, really. Great. Well, look, we've had a fantastic discussion. Uh, I think the key take-home messages that I've learned is that EGFR exon 20 insertions are uncommon, but there. If you don't do NGS, you won't find them. They look like your typical EGFR mutant patient, but we haven't got the kinase inhibitors that we'd like up front as yet. Those trials are still ongoing. We do have two licensed drugs in the post-platinum setting, MOBO and AMI, although only MOBO is prescribable in the NHS uh, at the moment. Uh, there are loads of trials going on. So, you know, please make sure that we find these patients and, um, you know, research is king to try and improving the outcome uh, of our patients. And with that, I'd like to thank our experts for giving up their, their time to speak uh, and really um, helping us understand this field uh, much better. And to the audience, thank you for your attention and look forward to uh, chatting to you further at the next of the VJ Oncology BTOG lung cancer sessions. Thank you. Thank you to our speakers and to you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple, Podbean and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.